iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from deep inside the Silicon Valley future machine. We did it, people. On Tuesday, we passed 100,000 listens, which, you know, for some might not be a big deal. For me, it is. So 100,000 thank yous to you, all of you. I really do appreciate you uh, tuning in each week, even though you'd have to really tune in. You just have to stay subscribed, but that's beside the point. I have a lot of fun doing the show. I hope you're still digging it too. If so, as always, tell a friend, rate it, review it, share it, spread the word. Also, if you have any guests you want to hear, subjects you think we should examine, let me know. Email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Get me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. I'm always up for ideas. Also, a quick note, in this unbelievable week of Facebook news, we will have a special bonus episode. In addition to today's show, The Normal Service, we will be putting out, should be, if all goes well, an extra bonus episode. Mr. Zuckerberg is keeping us all very, very busy, so keep an eye out for that. But now, on to today's show. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Currently, the internet is awesome and uh, has done tremendous things for global society, but there's certain aspects of it that are broken, and that's because I think largely identity is broken. This week, I met Joe Lubin, who is one of the co-founders of Ethereum, which, of course, is the world's second largest cryptocurrency after Bitcoin and the largest blockchain protocol. So Lubin has a super interesting backstory. He worked on Wall Street. He made reggae music in Jamaica. And just a few years ago, he happened into this Ethereum thing right after Vitalik Buterin, its creator, first surfaced the idea. And I know nowadays we hear lots of stories about your brother's uncle's barber who happened to bet on some Bitcoin a while ago and is now suddenly a millionaire. Well, Lubin is the real deal. His net worth is estimated somewhere between $1 billion and $5 billion. No one really knows how much Ethereum he actually has, but a lot. And these days he runs Consensus, which is a kind of a global studio that churns out Ethereum-based companies and tools all over the place. And around these parts, he's a bit of a geek rock star. I saw this firsthand at a Ethereum meetup in downtown San Francisco a few nights ago where he spoke to a standing room only crowd of what I'm guessing are coders, all guzzling, very warm, Stella Artois and inhaling boxes and boxes of soggy pizza. Okay, so I don't need to do an introduction. I think you guys are all here standing outside for this man. So let me just pass the baton to Joseph Lubin. Thank you, everybody. This is uh, overwhelming. This is uh, an amazing turnout. 
Thank you all for being here. I have to admit, I didn't stay for the speech. Because the day before, Lubin and I sat down at Stanford to talk about the founding story of Ethereum, why he thinks blockchain technology will change not just the internet, but become what he calls the new organizing principle of humanity. We also talk about why they set up the Ethereum Foundation's headquarters in Switzerland, of all places, you can probably guess why, and why the coming regulatory crackdown doesn't worry him. So, without further ado, here's Joe. So, can we start at the beginning? Can you just give a a quick kind of potted history of you up until you decided that maybe blockchain slash Ethereum was the thing that you wanted to dedicate your work to? So I've been a technologist for a long time, did more than two decades in software engineering around robotics, machine vision, AI, other kinds of systems, did some automated music composition. Towards the end of that aspect of my career, I worked at Goldman in private wealth management, essentially managing a software project, basically pure IT, but got exposed to various different elements from the financial world because I was working with different uh, teams that were building tools for the private wealth managers. Right after that, I ended up being asked to be part of a hedge fund. Uh, so ran essentially a series of hedge funds with so a partner. So you went from IT for, to running hedge while. funds. I started uh, on the more technical side of that, but we ended up being partners pretty quickly uh, on that sort of thing. That te- hedge fund, was that for Goldman? Had absolutely nothing to do with Goldman. Okay. No, it was after we shut that down, I moved into building different kinds of trading systems. So I had some freedom and was living in New York and spending time with a friend. And she had interest in creating a music career. She was already an entertainer and she knew everybody in the music industry in Jamaica. And so we figured it would be a great place to, to set up a tiny makeshift studio and uh, pursue that. And where in Jamaica was that? Kingston. Kingston. Yeah. And was this reggae? Like dance hall? Um, she wrote all the songs. We brought in some of the best talent, young artiste, composer types, and, and engineers, etc. And her style was kind of all over the map. So some reggae, certainly, uh, dance hall, ballads, and stuff that didn't really fit in a genre. Right, right. So you're living in Kingston doing that. Is that when you came across this idea of Ethereum? So I was still there. I was back in Toronto over Christmas break, 2013. So that was about a month after Vitalik had written the white paper. I communicated with Anthony DiOrio, who is another uh, one of the Ethereum founders. And he indicated that Vitalik, who I already had respect for but had never met, had written a white paper describing this new platform and um, should come and meet him. There's going to be a, a meetup on the 1st, January 1st, I think it was, in, um, in Toronto. So I spoke with Vitalik for a while, read the white paper that night. There were various different Skype channels that were all abuzz with this. And so the community was starting to coalesce around this project. A whole bunch of us ended up getting together in a house in Miami. There was just a buzz around it, a a very intense buzz around it. So at that house, a bunch of us uh, continued to flesh out the ideas of the project, both technical and business related. And Vitalik 
delivered the paper at the North American Bitcoin Conference uh, towards the end of that week. So what was your role in that whole situation? So my role on the Ethereum project evolved over time. Uh, I never wrote code. I was involved in design aspects early on when a bunch of the bigger concepts were just being fleshed out, but I was definitely more on the business side of things. So we were going to do a token launch the Tuesday after that event, and a few of us, including me, figured that that could be complicated because we we had a lot of people who are interested in the project, interested in trading some Bitcoin for Ether. Uh, it looked like it was going to be a lot of Bitcoin, therefore a lot of money, uh, and it looked like Bitcoin was going to go to $10,000 immediately. And so we didn't have real infrastructure to handle that sort of thing. There wasn't a company, wasn't a cold storage hot wallet solution. There wasn't a website where we just going to give people an address to send the Bitcoin to who, who would be in control of that. Oh, and by the way, uh, what would the SEC say? Uh, would they Small consider? Yeah, yeah, would they consider it the sale of an unregistered security to Americans? And so, it took us about seven months to work through all of that. The legal- so you're going to have a token sale, and then you stop that. Yeah, exactly. And then you work through all those details, and then you had the token sale. Then we had a token sale. Yeah. I did a bit of reading before. It was something like thirty cents per token, roughly. Yeah. So the price of Bitcoin was dropping. My guess. Because people are buying yeah, with Bitcoin, right? You can only yeah. buy with Bitcoin. It was considered a currency swap in Switzerland. Right. It was a 42-day sale. After Miami and in that house, you had set up the kind of headquarters in Zug in Switzerland? Yeah. Why? Back at that time, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, blockchain... Blockchain wasn't even a really surfaced concept as distinct from cryptocurrencies so much at that point. It was being painted in the media as something unsavory. And you could consider Ether a cryptocurrency, but it's just in the same way that you could consider a barrel of oil a currency. But uh, Ether was a crypto fuel, first crypto commodity, and it was necessary to power programs, to power computational steps and storage operations on this new compute platform wasn't clear to us how various different authorities in different countries would consider that sort of invention. And we were able to have direct conversations with Swiss authorities, a country that cherishes freedom. I guess leadership there considers in a significant way good governance to be a service to the people. So they were friendly. And if you look at how Zug has proceeded, which is where we set up the Ethereum Foundation, they've continued to move in this direction. They've, uh, they're taking cryptocurrencies for government services. In Zug right now, they are using the Uport self-sovereign identity system that we at our company Consensus has created. It enables uh, citizens to access government services and soon to vote in plebiscites. Blockchain going into politics, essentially. I guess you could call it that first accessing government services. Right. And since then, we've had so many conversations with so many people, including regulators and uh, leaders around the world, enforcement around the world, and done a tremendous amount to educate businesses, policymakers on what exactly this is and what the benefits are. And that's going extremely well in, in the United States is it? At, at this point. So it never got 
too scary or dangerous for anybody uh, in the United States. Because actually, I think this week, the G20 is meeting in Buenos Aires, and they're talking... I've heard that. (laughs) And one of the things on the agenda is trying to come up with kind of common sense regulation around cryptocurrency. Well, understanding. There have been some letters written. We were part of a little group that was trying to put together a document that... uh, defined various different uses for different kinds of tokens, basically uh, uh, partitioning up the space of, of different token types. Explaining that to regulators, uh, so this is how yeah, this for, is likely for, to uh, Yeah, exactly. Because you've also had folks like Google, Facebook, Twitter, they're all banning ads for cryptocurrencies. Does that worry you? Do you think that's appropriate? So it's a little bit silly at this point. It is probably their legal departments being prudent, With respect to regulation of utility tokens in the United States, as well as tokenized securities, we are comfortable with how things are proceeding. The regulators are gaining a deep understanding of the space. They're doing valuable and prudent things in terms of messaging to the space that uh, certain kinds of things will not be tolerated. The problem Uh, Essentially, there have been information asymmetries that people have taken advantage of for millennia. The problem in our space is that there's low barrier to entry to do such a thing, and the context is global, so it can be really impactful. It makes sense for regulators in various jurisdictions to make statements or enter into enforcement actions that cause various different kinds of actors to pause and do their appropriate legal homework before they do anything. Are you talking about, because there's a lot of scams, obviously, people are taking advantage. There's a lot of scams. At least right now, in the evolution, the great projects are much less interesting than the scams, in terms of media coverage. <laughs> well, <laughs> what are, I mean, <laughs> so what are you saying about the media? <laughs> well, it's true, right? I mean, if you think about how much money is being raised, I think it's yeah, several sure. billion dollars. If it bleeds, it leads is uh, the ethos of that space. Yeah. I mean, you had just read the white paper. What is it? Was there kind of a light bulb moment or why, what made you want to go pursue this? I believe that I understood the profound ramifications of Satoshi's white paper. But Vitalik was the first person to express how to deliver the value of blockchain, the value of crypto economics, the value of cryptocurrencies was just one, one narrow application on yeah. blockchain uh, and so many more. Uh, so Vitalik expressed a scalable way in in terms of human action where we could deliver all that promise, uh, where that wasn't really scalable, built on the, the Bitcoin platform. Uh, that protocol was too narrow. Uh, you required protocol priests to implement every new use case. And so Vitalik described a vision which was further elucidated and executed by a huge number of really capable people. That vision included a whole bunch of protocol priests at the protocol layer, continuing to evolve it uh, towards greater security, greater expressiveness, greater scalability. And we're seeing some very exciting stuff that we'll see ramify this year. But importantly, a clean separation of all that stuff from the application layer, where millions of software developers around the world, without understanding the depths of the protocol, can recognize the tool chains and and the kinds of patterns that are appropriate for developing decentralized applications on 
on that platform. And so that's where we're getting the boom, really. That's why we have uh, 100,000, 200,000 people who are technically capable, either making a living in the Ethereum ecosystem or very soon to be making a living in the Ethereum ecosystem. Right. And just go back to that house in Miami, that was a dozen people, 20 people, what have you. When you were staying there, could you envision that this thing becoming this global sure. kind of movement? Absolutely. That's why we were there. And it was just heads down working? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Where we are today, consensus. What is consensus? It started as a venture production studio. We brought a bunch of people together to build decentralized applications pretty close to the first to do that, or if not the first. We started building some things, an app store, an accounting system. We realized we needed developer tools, so we started building Truffle Suite, uh, which has seen over 300,000 downloads at this point. And what is Truffle Suite? It's a suite of tools for software developers to build decentralized applications. We started to build out applications people might want to release. So one really early one was proof of physical location. If you wanted to make use of this application, you would have to download the Ethereum client to your laptop. You'd have to sync with the blockchain. That wasn't going to be viable for consumers. So we ended up building something called MetaMask. MetaMask enabled software developers to release their software in the form of a URL and consumers to use the software in the form of a URL in a browser, uh, rather than worrying about where the blockchain database is actually sitting. Subsequently, we built a system called Infura, which handles an enormous amount of the traffic in the Ethereum ecosystem. On Ethereum, you have about a million transactions per day. And those transactions represent rights against the big, this big global database that is Ethereum. But there are about 9 billion other kinds of things going on uh, from the public ecosystem. Infura facilitates a lot of that. To put that all in context, Ethereum processes about twice as many transactions as the entire blockchain ecosystem, including Bitcoin, on a daily basis. And it does really? so much less expensively. If you add the other 9 billion things that are going on, uh, that, that's a lot of activity. Yeah. So, so we, uh, we had the Venture Production Studio. In addition to infrastructure, we built core components at the application layer, things like the Uport self-sovereign identity system, a very closely associated reputation system, bounty system in the form of the bounties.network and Gitcoin that incentivizes uh, open source developers to do that work, a decentralized governance tool called GovernX, an accounting system called Balance3. So those kinds of components can be used by other projects in in that niche. And we're, we've got about 25 different projects that are open platforms that lots of different actors can participate on where there isn't a dominating controller or monetizer. So effectively, you're creating OSs for different industries. Protocol-based open platforms, yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so in addition to that, we do work with uh, enterprises and governments around the world. So we've got a big uh, group called Solutions that does uh, delivery of software and advisory work, a bunch of different regional offices around the world. And we've worked in energy, supply chain, banking, insurance, healthcare, and education. And we've done significant government work in land registry. So there are three of those projects. We were named uh, manager of the EU blockchain advisory, helping with thought leadership around uh, blockchain. 
we did one project with the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is a real-time growth settlement system, and uh, taking that infrastructure and bringing it to other contexts as well. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right now, obviously, Facebook is in a bit of bunch of hot water over politics, how it works, all that stuff. The heart of that issue is the ad-driven internet and how that functions. Can blockchain remake the internet and how it works? That is the thesis that uh, Web 3.0, the decentralized World Wide Web, will be an evolution. It'll still just be the web. But the ways that we represent and control aspects of our identity can be very different. GDPR uh, in the European Union and Facebook everywhere and, and other uh, situations are bringing this to focus. Currently, the internet is awesome and uh, has done tremendous things for global society, but there's certain aspects of it that are broken. And that's because I think largely identity is broken. So we've built this system that uh, enables people to upload aspects of their identity, retain full control over those things. They are encrypted, but selectively and granularly disclosable in situations that people designate. Uh, so we think that's a better kind of situation than spraying aspects of our identity everywhere and having other people monetize them and others not secure them as well as we would like them to secure them. When we get UX right, when we get scalability sufficient, we think we'll be able to offer different ways of presenting services to consumers. Do you have a lot of refugees, for lack of a better word, from Silicon Valley from the big tech guys being like, well, I've seen, I've been inside that machine. I don't like how that's working. I'm going to go do this. This is more interesting. Trying to figure out the best way to respond to that. Uh, some, some of the uh, the leading thinkers of the legacy economy have indeed either left their institutions to do their own thing um, or some of them have certainly joined consensus uh, from the banking industry, from the insurance industry, from accounting, etc. Big tech Big tech, sure, absolutely. In particular, I don't want to be too mean to their former companies, but uh, yeah, absolutely. How do people get paid in consensus? Uh, money. <laughs> so they're on salary. Yeah, so we, uh, for quite a while, we're paying in cryptocurrencies. We're still doing that a tiny bit, but we've grown so fast. 
and uh, have built a pretty complicated global organization that we need to rely on legacy infrastructure to efficiently pay people. It's sad and a bit embarrassing for us uh, that we can't, uh, for me anyway, that we don't yet have a fluid way of interacting with the kinds of bookkeeping and accounting systems that we need to use as a company in 2018 or a set of companies in 2018 in different jurisdictions. But we've built uh, Balance 3, which is an accounting system. It's focused on blockchain-based entities and tokens right now. We're looking to build infrastructure by which we can operate fully in a Web3 world or a fully decentralized protocol world. We effectively have to pioneer what it is to be a company in this in this new space, and uh, we're going to externalize all those tools once we make them work for ourselves. And so what is consensus today in terms of headcount and offices, et cetera? 700 people in 30 countries, a bunch of different offices around the world. And do you live in any one place in particular, or do you just... Yeah, seat 2A. <laughs> <laughs> so I, do you actually I, have I a stole, base? I stole that from Andrew Keyes, yeah. or maybe Jeremy Miller, he, uh, he uses that term. A bunch of us live on airplanes and, and in airports, a uh, ton of travel. And I live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York. Which is where the main office is in the very in it's a graffiti where, It's where we have a lot, lot of right. people come to work. Uh, we move around a lot, but uh, yeah, the bulk of people come to work in Brooklyn. And this idea that, you know, the Puertopia in Puerto Rico, there's people like oh, Brock yeah, Pierce sure. who's setting up a kind of, yeah. trying to like buy a piece of land, set up a I've kind heard of that, yeah. crypto society. Uh-huh. Does that appeal at all? Do you think that's a crazy idea? or I think what would appeal and we certainly have people involved in that situation what does appeal is bringing real economic change and opportunity to situations that need it wherever it is in the world in puerto rico i don't think it's all that attractive and i'm not sure brock is even espousing this but if we focus on building some businesses there, if we focus on doing education there, if we focus on hiring there, then I think that's going to be a great for the, the local economy. And I believe at the founding, there was a big debate about whether to make Ethereum a nonprofit or for-profit. Where did you fall on that, and did you think it ended up in the right? So it was a long-running discussion. It wasn't at the founding. It sort of emerged over the ensuing months. Everyone was pretty much on board uh, with being crypto Google, and that meant that we would create this open source protocol, uh, we would gift it to the world, we would put it under a foundation, and that same group of people would go on to build different products, some of them for profit. It turned out that that group of people didn't foresee working together warmly long term, but we all still do see each other around the world. and. Pretty much, I think we're all quite friendly or very friendly, and the Ethereum ecosystem is astonishingly positive and friendly and collaborative compared to some other ecosystems. But uh, it did become clear that we needed to shrink up the mission and just focus on uh, the protocol. We created the foundation to do exactly that, to shepherd the uh, protect the continuation of the protocol and Vitalik as as chief scientist on the project uh, has done an astonishing job of leading by doing, leading by example, not, he doesn't ever tell anybody what to do, 
when protocol decisions are in his purview. He sources information broadly and uh, takes part in making decisions. And we all indicated that uh, we're free to go off and do what we want to do. It's just an open source project with a whole bunch of people who were passionate about the potential of it. A number of us have continued in our different directions, pretty much continuing in the vision of, of the original project. Building the crypto Google with lots of stuff. Well, lots of people are building different ventures in the space. And, and we need so many more businesses in the space. Uh, there's no way that uh, a platform like this can become significant unless it attracts uh, a huge amount of entrepreneurial, technical interest and value in the form of money into the ecosystem. Yeah. Were you involved in the, I think it's called the Ethereum Enterprise Alliance in setting that Indeed, up? Indeed, yes. So what is that? Why did you set it up and why is it important? So we do a lot of work, as I indicated, with different uh, companies around the world, a bunch of banks and other, other kinds of entities. And there were a bunch of others that we were talking to that we weren't working directly with. In all these situations, there were teams that were building on Ethereum because it was and remains by far the most expressive decentralized application platform. What they had to do at that point was download the Ethereum code, uh, usually in the form of the Go implementation, Geth, and roll their own enterprise-friendly extensions to it, uh, you know, do certain tweaks. Uh, JP Morgan uh, worked with Jeff, Jeff Wilke and team to uh, produce Quorum, which is a, an enterprise-friendly version of Ethereum. And there were a whole bunch of other fit-for-purpose things. We did some. Jeremy Miller at Consensus uh, began to have conversations with all these different groups about the fact that wouldn't it be nice if we just standardized on an enterprise edition of Ethereum. So Vitalik was also thinking in that direction and talking to a few people. And so those discussions were proceeding already at the Ethereum Foundation level, but they weren't, I, I think, moving very quickly. There were certain resistances, not by Vitalik, that made it difficult to move that forward quickly with the, the different groups that we were talking with. In a, a pretty intense effort at the start of 2017, we and others put together this foundation, put together a legal infrastructure by which all these different organizations could come together and not worry about IP issues and basically create a discussion format where we can could define specifications for enterprise-friendly Ethereum. So it was all about the protocol level, and that's been going really well. Uh, Ron Resnick, the new executive director of the EEA, has indicated that we're probably going to release specs, which are getting very mature, within maybe a month or two. What's really interesting and sort of unexpected was that because of the trustworthy nature of blockchain systems, where it represents a, a context where different actors who normally build siloed systems for themselves can get together and build shared infrastructure. So entire industries can do that. We're seeing all these working groups pop up for banking, for insurance, for advertising technology, for healthcare, for legal. And they are talking about specifications for shared infrastructure, and, and it's a good place for them to build shared infrastructure. And so I think we're at around 440 companies. Our friends at Hyperledger, I think, are also growing. But uh, right. I, I think uh, by company count, uh, Ethereum Alliance is, uh, is larger. Have you sold any of your Ether? 
I sell some to pay some expenses. But you sell most? No comment. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. As ever, I appreciate you tuning in, downloading, etc. Um, thank you to Joe for carving out a bit of time in what is a very busy schedule, uh, flying around the world, spreading the, uh, the gospel of Ethereum. Um, and also for having me along to the meetup and the soggy pizza. I ate a lot of it, but... Um, I needed it. It was a long cycle home. Um, you can find me, as you always can, in the newspaper at the Sunday Times, online, thetimes.co.uk, on Twitter at Danny Fortson, email danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. We will be back next week with another edition. Until then, have a fabulous, fabulous weekend. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.